if religions are founded in the dream of a just world, then conspiracy theories are founded in the dream of a fun world. The fun has always gone too fast, though, replaced by fear and an unwillingness to embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 196 of Embrace the Void, where today's special phrase is, uh-oh. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are staring into the epistemic abyss. So, let's conspiracize. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Scott Tyson, an assistant professor in political science at the University of Rochester. Scott, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. How are you doing? Doing all right. You know, all things considered, slowly coming out of this year and all. How about you? Uh, how's, same how's thing. School things on your end. Yeah. Uh, it's good. I'm glad the weather's warm. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice to be outside and moving around. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk a little bit about one of my favorite ongoing uh, topics, which is sort of conspiracy theories and our epistemic crisis. Um, before we get to our conspiracy hypothesizing, uh, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background and kind of what brings you to the conspiracy verse? So my background is I'm a, I'm a formal theorist in political science. So I've done a lot of, I think of my work mostly as conceptual work and I got interested in, you know, conspiracy. I was a fan of the X-Files when I was a kid. And mm -hmm. so I've always had a kind of a, a casual interest in conspiracy theories and things like that. And just the, the world around uh, uh, conspiracy theories. And I, at Rochester, I taught a course on conspiracy theories in American politics because around 2016, 2015, I started to see like, okay, you know, these things are being politicized much more than they used to be. It's not just uh, mm -hmm. for entertainment. I mean, there's still an entertainment aspect to it. I'm not saying they're not going to have that. I'm not saying they don't have that. But I started to see, you know, more and more politicization through conspiracy theories. And then as a political scientist of, of a theoretical sort, I got more and more interested and started reading more and more on it. And then that's when I decided, hey, you know, it would be really interesting and useful to teach a course on this and mm -hmm. I taught it twice and it changed a, a good amount between the first time and the second time just because of how much the environment around disinformation and conspiratorial narratives changed over the course of, hmm. of a year yeah i want to talk about that change some i think that's really like been crucial to the stuff i've been seeing from a lot of folks which is that there's this kind of substantial difference between the last generation of conspiracies and conspiracy theories and the practices around them and like this kind of new breed of as you say kind of highly politicized internet conspiracy theory world um, i'm curious what you see are like the main shifts there and like are they shifts that we should be particularly worried about um so the main shift that i've i've uh, sort of the most important shift in in my opinion is we kind of went from what I call conspiracy theories, which are, you know, Roswell, New Mexico houses, aliens and things like that, um, mm -hmm. which we kind of, which are older and 
typically involves some you know, complicated, wide-reaching narrative with a lot of complexity and how everything fits together. To We've shifted from that to uh, what I've been uh, calling conspiracism, kind of removing the mm-hmm. theory part, because a lot of the modern conspiracism really of the last 10 or 15 years hasn't really been focused on constructing wide-reaching narratives that make a bunch of connections, but instead are more kind of challenges or, or like hmm. accusations. Mm-hmm. For exa- so the, I think the most prominent early one is the birther conspiracy. But there was never some elaborate conspiracy at the beginning that, you know, mm-hmm. here's this wide-reaching conspiracy to convince people that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. It was just a, he wasn't born in the United States without any evidence, without a theory. And eventually things attached to that, but that dynamic seems to change continuously almost where Mm -hmm. it's more about asserting things, which always puts the burden of proof, not on the conspiracy, the conspiratorially minded person, but on someone else. I, I think this proved to me that I'm wrong while I continually dodge, right? Or put down any evidence that you might bring Mm -hmm. to the table. And I think that's really been a change from what I nostalgically refer to as like the X-Files style conspiracy theories to Mm -hmm. these political conspiracies uh, that we are seeing more and more of. So this is this is a interesting take about sort of the evolving nature of conspiracy. I do sort of see what you're saying about like birtherism and especially a lot of like, I would say, sort of Trump centered conspiracies, mostly because I think Trump is just a very lazy thinker. He's not going to build a giant theory, right? He's just going to throw out accusations right. and like make other people deal with it. But at the same time, like I wonder about something like QAnon. How does your sort of analysis here like make sense of something like QAnon, which seems to me to be a fairly like not a, not a good one or anything, but it is definitely a vast X filey kind of conspiracy in a sense, isn't it? Parts of it are so that I actually find QAnon really mm-hmm. interesting as a phenomenon, and you know, ha- having taught this course twice, uh, both semesters I taught QAnon, and as I was preparing the second time. I, you know, I was just doing some background and seeing, you know, what kind of things. And so I, I taught it in 20, uh, 2017, no, taught it in 2019 and 2020. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, between 2019 and 2020, the narrative around QAnon had shifted so much. I was shocked when I was just kind mm-hmm. of looking around at things. And then I, but more, more journalists had, had a, delved into trying to unpack what QAnon is. And I think the feature of QAnon that makes it different from the X-Files style conspiracy theories is that it's much more gamified. And what I mean is mm-hmm. it's a, it, it has a pick your own adventure kind of style to it. So if you and I were to just wander the country and try to extract QAnon from different people, we would see almost like mutated strands of it everywhere. And from mm-hmm. there, perhaps we, we could construct some skeletal narrative. But even if we got that skeletal narrative and then went back through and talked to a bunch of people, some people who, who consider themselves adherents of QAnon wouldn't necessarily recognize that skeletal narrative that we constructed. So it's really, uh, it's its own thing where I, you know, I don't think that who killed Kennedy had this kind of mutating aspect to it that just continue to hmm. proliferate. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the the gamification thing. I've talked a couple of times with um, T. Nayen, who was also on Guru Pod, talking mm-hmm. about the way that like gamification plays into uh, a lot of these behaviors. And yeah, I do see something different there where it's like, you know, the old version of the the conspiracy theories of like, you know, JFK or something, people would posit different explanations, but they were usually like motivated towards like political ends in some in right. some sense. And while QAnon is a politicized conspiracy, the goal of most of the players, I, I mean, like it, it does have a political element to it, but I think you're right that it also has this kind of psychological build your own universe, choose your own adventure kind of sandbox to it that like is different from those previous models. 
So how does this then tie in with issues around radicalization? Because I know this is something that you talk about frequently with regard to um, conspiracy theories. And you have kind of an interesting take on kind of the nature of radicalization. So how do you understand radicalization? And like, how does it how does the conspiracy theory world create your version of that? Uh, that's a that's a great question. And it's something that I like my thinking on it continues to evolve. So mm-hmm. um, I recently published a paper on radicalization and the, the way that we thought of radicalization in that particular study was we thought of it as the, someone is radicalized when they become self-motivated to take certain actions. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I want people to participate in a riot on January 6th, right? Do I need to pay them? Do I need to do something for them? Well, maybe some mm. people, but some people are self-motivated to go do that. And that's kind of what I would call a form of radicalization. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that's what it means to be radicalized, but that is definitely mm-hmm. one way in which radicalization manifests in a way that I think is probably one of the most important ways that radicalization manifests um, mm-hmm. as a political tool. And then building on that is that Radicalization, uh, like we've seen it happen by a number of different groups. So ISIS, Al Qaeda, they radicalized people. And if you look into how they how they did it, conspiracies and conspiratorial narratives are a part of every radicalization process because mm-hmm. it's partly about isolating someone from a broader epistemic community. So if I mm-hmm. want to radicalize you, the best thing that I can do is isolate you from people who are going to give you alternative opinions or help you process the information that I'm giving you, right? Or, or kind of engender any skepticism on your part. I want to keep you away from those people. It's very similar mm-hmm. to, to cults. Cults do the same thing when they take in a new For recruit. Sure. They keep them away from people that they associated with before they joined into the cult. All mm-hmm. of these things, right, we, we think of them slightly differently, but there's a core component that is conspiracies are simply a tool that, that we, not we, but that, that different political groups or cult leaders um, use to isolate and radicalize people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this great. This is perfect because this gets to the, the crux of a lot of things. And I definitely, to me, more and more, I see overlap between cult and conspiracy. Not all cults need a conspiracy theory, but like there is this very high correlation, it seems like, between cultish behavior and conspiratorial behavior. Now, what's what I think is really valuable at the crux of this is everybody, it seems to me, is accusing everybody else of doing exactly what you just said, right? All sides of the political spectrum, I think, at the moment are accusing their opponents of basically building reactionary cults that will then propel them to political victory, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Now, so I'm curious, I want to ask initially, in your sort of research and your experience and your own impression, do you feel like this is a universal problem that everyone is experiencing equally, or are there asymmetries to the way that um, conspiracism is sort of filtering into American politics right now? Um, I think that the way that conspiracism is entering American... So one one kind of common feature of conspiratorial... What's the word I'm with? Conspiratorial entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is the idea of false flags. <laughs> And right. so anytime they're putting forward a, conspir- a conspiracy narrative, they're also providing the tools of doubt to, you know, to make sure that they can keep people isolated epistemically. I think the, mi- the mm-hmm. big difference between a cult and, a, and, and kind of what we see more broadly as conspiracy entrepreneurship is most cults are able to geographically isolate people. So the kind of like distrust your neighbors, distrust these people, it's still there, but it's not, it's not their most important weapon. Whereas when you're trying to reach people, but you can't put them in a room and keep them from anywhere else, you really have to engender this uh, deep distrust of people that they may have known and and trusted before. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, part of that is, is basically gaslighting. 
if I'm trying to convince you of some conspiracy, well, I need to gaslight people that are going to tell you that what I'm telling you is false or suspect in some way. And so part mm-hmm. of the conspiracy narrative is to accuse the other side of the thing you're doing. Right. I've noticed politically, um, you know, a lot of people accuse Trump of projection. He's always accusing the other side of the things that he's doing. And that's certainly true. But I think it's not just a kind of psychological impulse to project, but it's also Mm -hmm. part of his weapons, like part of that toolbox of weapons that he uses to discredit the other side. Yeah, I strongly agree. And I, I, I compare it often to the Karl Rove method of attacking where you're weakest. Mm-hmm. The idea that like in a political debate, there are no consequences to drive like headlong into the place where you are worst off. And if the media environment will just act like, well, it's just two people debating over race or something like that, that there's no you, you can basically undermine any particular attack by first leveling it against your opponents before they level it against you, it seems like. So, yeah, I do. And I see a lot of projection in, you know, when I look at conspiracy, like the anti-woke kind of conspiracy theorists, I feel like I see like a, a ton of like they're projecting their, their worst sort of mentalities onto their opponents or their worst sort of behaviors, or alternately that they're sort of sliding into those behaviors as they are repeatedly engaging with their opponents. I guess it could go either way there. Um, so you also mentioned false flags there, which I do think is an important part of the, the current landscape that folks like um, uh, Alex Jones have really mainstreamed and popularized. Uh, but like, this is one of those situations and there are many situations around the conspiracy stuff where I'm like, boy, I sure feel like we're totally fucked on this. And one of them is, I don't know if you've been listening to the daily podcast recently, but they've been doing a series about, um, essentially a conspiracy, not like conspiracy theory, but like a genuine conspiracy within the German military of like white nationalists trying to do false flags where they kill people and, blame it on foreigners essentially and so i just wonder do you as you're working through this stuff with your students do you struggle with feeling like we are absolutely screwed in trying to like counterbalance people's you know belief in false flags given that there are genuine attempts at false flags happening right now that we've exposed yeah that's that's definitely a challenge i i think so you're, you're absolutely right. There are legitimate false flags that we have evidence of. Roger Stone always tried to do, he, he did this mm-hmm. multiple times, uh, either plotting to do a false flag or doing one. Mm-hmm. Um, what I tell the students, which it's a broader thing that I tell them uh, to be wary of anytime you're looking at a conspiracy and, and trying to ascertain you know, how believable is it is to think about how complicated is this conspiracy? So a false flag that involves 20 people mm-hmm. may be something that's feasible. But for instance, I'm sure you've seen that a lot of uh, lawmakers are now saying that January 6th was a false flag. But mm-hmm. in, order to, in order to do such a false flag, you need thousands of people in on it mm-hmm. that can keep it mm-hmm. a secret. And, you know, I don't know if this is just my personal experience living on this earth but it's really hard to get people to keep secrets especially when the secrets are juicy right yeah well i mean that's the like basic math of conspiracy theories is that like the reason that they you shouldn't believe in them is because any number of people beyond like three and you immediately have an unwieldy conspiracy that will be revealed and like that's the upshot of the daily thing is that like that german conspiracy with the false flag stuff was revealed because it was large enough to like people knew about it right right so i i do think there is like a little bit of a backstop there um that is valuable so i'm curious um you know there's been a lot of discussion around the way that conspiracy theories have kind of festered during COVID, right? Everybody's on lockdown and stuff and like on their computers too much. And, um, you know, of course you've got COVID as itself, like a hotbed of various kinds of conspiracy theories, all sorts of like the worst of the globalist stuff is, is easily tied into all of these concerns. And I'm curious, looking forward a little bit, do you have any sense about like, how this is going to go as we start to come out of lockdown? Like, do you think that 
a lot of like recreational QAnoners will just go back to sort of normal life? Or do you think that once like people are sucked into this stuff and they come out of lockdown, they're going to, their behavior will have changed too much. That's, that's a really interesting question. And I, I think relative to a lot of people, I'm more optimistic than most in this regard, because I think, and this is something I always tell my students, the first class or the second class, it's mm-hmm. really important when you think about, you know, people who believe in conspiracy theories, it's not so binary. It's not that, you know, I don't believe in them, but you know, this person does. It's mm-hmm. because saying somebody believes in conspiracies, it is people engage with the conspiracy at, at differing levels. So some people are kind mm-hmm. of down the rabbit hole, but some people, you know, they're just interested by it, but they haven't invested a lot of time into it. Right. So there's varying degrees of people that how people engage with conspiracy theories. And then the other part that I always remind the students of is it's not that there's a set of people who believe in conspiracy theories and a set of people who don't. It's more of a spectrum mm-hmm. of, of how how susceptible are you? We're all a little susceptible to some conspiratorial thinking at times, and it just latches on to some people more than others. And the most mm-hmm. important, th- or the, I think the most important element that allows that kind of conspiratorial thinking to grow is isolation. And that's why COVID-19 mm-hmm. really ramped up a lot of uh, people interested in QAnon uh, and various other health conspiracies because, like we were talking about before, isolating someone is really a good way to get them radicalized. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, more optimistically, as we, you know, start to come out of lockdown, we see people we haven't seen in a while, we start having more casual conversations with people. I think that that will act to curb some of the the people that were not, I mean, the people that have have kind of fully gone down the rabbit hole, I think that's a more challenging uh, mm-hmm. problem. But a lot of people that are not that invested and then start hanging out with friends and, and having a bit more casual relations, relationships and conversations with people, that'll curb, mm-hmm. you know, they'll kind of realize, oh, yeah, that is kind of kooky and I don't really care that much. I'd rather, you know, have mm-hmm. a beer with my friend. Because one thing I think that's happened with, with COVID is like, most conversations now are scheduled, which mm. it kind of raises the bar about what you're going to talk about, right? Like you, you don't have a <laughs> lot of like, now eh, we're getting off of work. Let's go grab a beer and just talk. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that with people anymore. And I think as that mm-hmm. returns, the, the, the people you talk to and the things you talk about will expand. And I, I hope and I think that that will somehow curb these more uh, people on the fringes of the conspiracies. So, so you mentioned uh, isolation, which is a common theme in sort of what we, what we call brick and mortar kind of cults, right? And it's in, in, con- in conjunction with what I think I see are political asymmetries about the way that cults are sort of dominating the conservative side of the political landscape more, though not, not to say there are no conspiracy theories on the left, but they do not appear to be running the Democratic Party the way that the GOP is fully embroiled in like electioneering conspiracy theory stuff at this point. Um, And one thing that just popped into my mind, I'm curious your thoughts about this. Do you wonder if that one aspect that makes conservative individuals in America at least more susceptible to conspiracy theories is the kind of isolation that comes with living in more rural communities, essentially, that like you are in those more physically isolated spaces where you are interacting with a small group of sort of largely like-minded individuals. And that kind of creates the, the physical version of the um, uh, epistemic bubble that a lot of folks feel like they are on digitally these days. I think that's right. I think um, a good metaphor for how these epistemic bubbles form is, is like genetics. Mm-hmm. How much, how much is in the gene pool mm-hmm. epistemically? Like, I'm not saying it's genetic. That's not what I mean at all. I'm not saying there's any relationship there. It's t- okay. You're, you're absolutely saying it's entirely about IQ. I, I, I hear you picking <laughs> you up loud and clear. Yep. Yeah, no, it's purely a metaphor, but it's, it's just like, how many, how many people do you have contributing to ideas and, and being able to innovate on ideas and things like that and, and, and push back against ideas and when you're in a more diverse pool of people, 
the more fringe ideas don't don't survive and they don't spread. Mm-hmm. But if you're in an isolated community, you talk to five people, it's much easier mm-hmm. for those things to get spread. What you need is a more diverse point of view. And I think one thing that we've learned in the last five years is that that kind of diversity of opinions doesn't come from TV and media and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. It comes from friends and neighbors who you know, are, are willing to engage with those ideas and, and you can kind of work it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you keep mentioning sort of, I know in your stuff, you mentioned the last five years. And I do think there has been a bit of a sea change in the last five years with Trump sort of championing that sea change. I do think it's also, though, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, continuing in this vein of like, you know, if there is an asymmetry, why is it that like the conservative side? Because I don't think that like conservatives are by nature more prone to conspiracy theories or something like that. I think I agree with your basic stuff earlier that like we are all, you know, but for the grace of the void, one step away from believing a conspiracy theory. Um, But I also think that they seem to be in a spiral with it. Um, And, and, you know, I was recently writing about the American culture war and it seems to me the conspiracy stuff goes back, you know, it goes way back, right? It goes back to the French Revolution, but like it, you see it, you see sort of the modern phase of it, I think, really coming into its own with the Southern strategy, with this idea of like conservatives trading on white fear and white anxiety as their token for electoral success. I'm curious, do you feel like you know, the ecosystem that we see folks like Trump thriving in now are built on what is essentially racialized conspiracy theory fear? I think that's absolutely right. I think the, I can't remember the name of the book now, it's called Paranoid State of America, something like this. Hmm. And it's a book Mm -hmm. that talks about different conspiracy theories in the United States and goes through, you know, we've had them since, since the founding and they really took off in the South after the civil war and Mm -hmm. it the southern strategy was one uh concerted effort to mobilize that Mm -hmm. and you know uh, i grew up in the 90s and and you kind of saw it there a little bit Mm -hmm. but it hadn't really been weaponized in the same way it was just something that had it, it was under the surface but you kind of knew it was there but it hadn't made it out into the open, I think, in terms of um, Mm -hmm. campaigns. I'm sure there are markers. I'm not saying it wasn't there at all. But Trump, I think, just, and I don't think he innovated any of this. It was really Rush Limbaugh and Alex Jones. And those were the conspiracy entrepreneurs. He was just somebody Mm -hmm. who was, who bought into that and is good at being a megaphone for assertion. Mm Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it is interesting to look at like Bill Cooper and Alex Jones and those folks in the 90s who kind of lay the the theoretical groundwork, right? If the if the Southern strategy creates the emotional and racial background, then those guys like and like primarily, I think what you see is is kind of a globalist an anti-globalist centered conspiracy theory world, right? Where they're tying it all together and saying the people who are ruining your life through social progress are these, you know, echo style elites, right? Not 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 Jews um, who you know, hate everything that you value and so are trying to destroy it, Um, which makes me then I'm curious if you would agree, you know, when I look at the stuff that's going on in the culture wars still, I always I I think the culture wars are always rife with the conspiracy theories, but the current stuff about like critical race theory and this idea of effectively a cult of woke individuals indoctrinating children and like you know, driving them to hate America and be communists and such. Do you see that as essentially just being the next phase of this ongoing conspiracy project? It's it's interesting you mentioned that because I I wasn't sure and I don't I, I don't know that much about critical race mm. theory. Mostly what I've learned is from Twitter. Right. Uh, which is that's, not that's where everyone should learn everything they know about critical race right. theory. Why else would you go <laughs> elsewhere? Uh, but I saw uh a commentary on Trump's speech yesterday mm-hmm. and he, he mentioned it in the speech and there were a huge applause. And that was the first time I thought, uh Oh, this is something more than just <laughs> stuff revolving around 
Twitter, this is a campaign strategy. And, mm -hmm. you know, without, without knowing what they're building it on, it, it's like, I've seen this before. I know how this goes. It's so funny when you when you get used to looking at this stuff enough and you have those kind of like Spidey Sense uh-oh moments. Um, I'm curious I'm curious what other kind of uh-oh moments you've had. Ones for me have been like when Liz Cheney was just removed from leadership because she wouldn't buy into the electoral conspiracy theory stuff. I'm like, that's a that's a big uh-oh, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what was the other ones? Um, Trump claiming that he's still the president and will be reinstated. That's that's yeah. a bit of an uh-oh. That's an uh-oh. There's a lot of uh-ohs. Um, yeah, so... And some of them will um, pass and be nothing, mm -hmm. but, I, you know, mm -hmm. I remember a year ago, the well, the first time he said he didn't want to wear a mask, and I thought, uh-oh, this, mm -hmm. this is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I do think that, and, and like when you look at tweets by folks like Chris Rufo, who will say, you know, our entire goal was to essentially weaponize the term critical race theory, like yeah. with no expectation that anyone would know what it meant, but that it would be the new, you know, PC police, the new cancel culture, whatever, like just, just it's about creating sort of a very thin permission structure on which to hang, you know, the ongoing animosity, it seems like. Right. And I think a, 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 a marker there is always who's defining the term. Is it the mm -hmm. enemy? If you're defining the term while you're saying it's bad, you know, mm -hmm. th those of us who are more neutral and, and going, hey, what is going on here? When you notice that it's being defined by its opponent, something mm -hmm. is fishy going on here. And, you know, I mean, we could come up with a mm -hmm. bunch of different examples where that happens uh, be because why define something, right? Like why define something mm -hmm. you're opposed to if you're not about yeah, to recognize it? Yeah, and I think you'll see a very conspiratorial response if you ask that question, which is, we have to define it because they lie. Like, when they define it, they will do it in slippery ways so that you won't know what they're really saying, which is a common, you know... So, like, right. it's it's a problem because they'll say, well, they say this, and you'll go to the text and you'll say, look, they don't actually say that in the text, and they'll, then they'll fall back on, well, that's because they're lying, right? And then, and then you could just believe whatever you want, right? Because there's no, there's no way to invalidate it through textual evidence or anything like that like that right that's that's the standard response which I, i've always found somewhat odd because the assumption mm -hmm. is that the interlocutor is not himself lying mm -hmm. right well you say well if they're willing to lie about what it is what stops you from lying about what it is right why aren't we all just which actually about they're fine with because it's not that they're trying to mobilize people necessarily against what mm -hmm. critical race theory is they don't want to talk about what critical race theory is I, I admit, I don't know what it is, but right. But they just want you to know you should dislike it. Right. And they also, I think, you know, the, the not caring part, a lot of people have mentioned the kind of rise of bullshit in the technical sense, right? Mm -hmm. The desire to create a world in which no one cares about the truth rather than one in which we are actually arguing about the truth. And I think that's also been heavily kind of a Trumpian influence, though I, I would also argue that like the ground was laid by, you know, 60 years of anti-intellectual attacks on academia and such. Um, so, you know, flipping the script here a little bit though, just, I don't, I don't want to spend all of our time here just ragging on one side of the problem. I'm curious, um, do you ever worry that like the language of, and I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter compared to how much time I spend on it, but the language of social justice advocates, um, whether it also could sometimes slip into the kind of demonizing or conspiratorial thinking or tone um, that we might be worried about escalating in problematic ways? Um, most of what I understand about social justice warriors is from Twitter also. So okay. let's That's take that caveat. Fair. Part, part of the issue is like as a, as a political scientist who, who's, you know, theoretical precision is very important to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's why I, I'm very mm -hmm. careful. I'm like, I don't really know what that is. <laughs> so like I have some <laughs> idea, but I could be, I could be way off. But I think that there's <clears throat> a big problem in our politics on both sides is mm -hmm. what, what we've, I think we've been moving towards lately is the demonization of the other side 
of all varieties. Both sides do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that that's a good place for, cons- you know, conspiracy theorizing and all of these things to, to grow because as soon as you're not willing to take the other side at face value with their arguments, mm-hmm. you're in a, mm-hmm. you're in a, there's a problem. And I totally understand the skepticism that people have. There's a lot of bad faith arguments out there. I personally think mm-hmm. one side contributes to bad faith arguments much worse than the other, but right. it is, it is um, the, that skepticism that gets bred by that produces mm-hmm. a kind of demonization of the other side, which I see on, on both sides. And mm-hmm. you know, that, that I think is, is, is dangerous because that's how conspiracy theories grow. Mm-hmm. Right. No, yeah, this is this is absolutely something that worries me. It's another one of those like I feel like we're a little fucked kind of things, which is like even if like let's say the conservatives are one hundred percent to blame, right? It's their resistance to racial progress that is that is like the the beating heart of the the problem, right? Um, their abusive behavior, right? Their various kinds of bigoted behavior will in turn produce a lot of suffering and unhappiness on the other side, which will lead people to then, like you say, sort of demonize them. And and you can argue it's justified if you feel like, you know, you people have caused enough harm, right? But justified or not, it does promote then that space for those conspiracy theories. I, when I was doing stuff on Bill Cooper, you know, Bill Cooper is this like, you know, sh- uh, schlubby, white, like conservative kind of dude who got a bunch of popularity in like black rapper communities because they felt that he was telling them who was actually causing the harm to their communities. And in those kind of situations where you have communities that are genuinely being marginalized by large scale systemic forces, right, it becomes, I feel like, even harder to criticize them for succumbing to this stuff even if it is still going to produce a lot of harm for everyone involved it seems like i think the term that political scientists are using because i don't i don't do a lot with american politics but uh, what my Mm. term i think my colleagues have been using is negative partisanship people Mm -hmm. care more about being not not a democrat or not a republican than they do about the actual party that they you know uh, vote for Mm-hmm. And that I, th- I I don't quite know what the long term influence of that is, but as it touches on conspiracy theories, I think this is you know this is where they come from because mm-hmm. you you care more about the other side being wrong or evil or whatever, and so you're 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 sort of open to the idea that they're doing some messed up shit, and mm-hmm. maybe even more you know I said this early on. Conspiracy theories are entertaining. I, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't mm-hmm. pretend that they're not. They're entertaining, and sure. so you know if you're like I really hate the other side. Oh, what what's this story about them? That sounds interesting. Tell me tell me more. Right. You're much more willing to invest in those in, in in learning more about them or spreading them to other people, which itself is dangerous. Um, and I don't I don't know how to fix this problem. But okay. it's a good strategy. That was, that was my next question was how do we fix this problem? So it's good that you got that out there. Yeah. It seems like a good strategy to – the strategy that's being used right now is mm-hmm. let me try to make my opponent let, – let me try to make my opponent see as many enemies as possible. Mm-hmm. Not just me, but like try, try to have them have a, as expansive a definition of an enemy as possible. Because mm-hmm. that backs them into a corner politically. They can't do anything. They can't get anything done because they refuse to compromise with anyone. Interesting. And you see that happening on both sides. But it, the right seems a lot more effective at it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, just from Twitter, right? There, there was a lot on, um, right. on Joe Manchin today. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I disagree with a lot of his politics. But he's not the big enemy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Joe Manchin situation is rough. I mean, I think the big enemy is the filibuster and yeah. Joe Manchin is just a guy, um, you know, dealing with his particular uh, incentive structure. 
Um, but you know, getting, getting a little more into this question of like, how do we fix this? Usually when I get to this part of the conspiracy theory episodes, there's a lot of like throwing our hands up in the air and everybody gets really depressed, but you did a study recently on the effects of both economic and psychological interventions to kind of decrease conspiracism and radicalization. Um, and I'm hoping maybe you have some good news from, uh, for us from that study. Uh, Maybe, but <laughs> the conclusion the conclusions are somewhat uh, narrow because they apply to a very specific kind of uh, phenomenon. Okay. And really, what they're focused on is uh, the incentives of the leaders to try to indoctrinate people, to try to radicalize mm-hmm. people. And what we were interested in was if I change economic conditions or if I change, you know, psychological what we call psychological susceptibility to radicalization. How do those leaders respond? Mm-hmm. Do they put more effort into radicalizing people or do they put less? Mm-hmm. And our basic conclusions in a nutshell were, if you increase economic conditions, so just make everybody better off, then, mm. then what you're doing is you're making radicalizing people more expensive on the margin. Mm-hmm. And But psychological susceptibility is a bit more... Uh, nuanced because if you make it easier or harder for people to become radicalized, then you're not changing the incentive structure of the uh, leaders in a, in a, in a straightforward way. So it could actually Mm -hmm. lead to them putting more effort into radicalizing people. If you make Mm -hmm. them less psychologically susceptible to be radicalized, they're going to compensate for that by putting in more effort. Now the total total number of people that get radicalized could be more, could be less, depending on, you know, how much more effort did they actually put in when people became psychologically less susceptible. So I'm curious then as a teacher who's teaching about conspiracy theories, do you think about trying to make your own students less psychologically susceptible? And do you worry about like a blowback effect if you like do that, but they end up just getting more radicalized as a result? So I, th- I think about that a lot, um, especially early in the semester when I start the course. And I view mm-hmm. it as, you know, so the, the, the paper on radicalization is more geared towards like government. What should the government do? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't work for the government. And I kind of see myself <laughs> as having... Is, that, is University of Rochester not a state school? It, it is not. It is a private school. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's A lot of people make that mistake because of the name, right? It seems like it sounds pretty state schoolish. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, but I I see myself as having an ethical duty to students, which Mm -hmm. is is like, you know, okay, I can't make them economically better off. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) ideally, and in the future, you know, hopefully I'm giving them tools that will help them, right? Like I want to do that, but I can ideally give them the tools that they would need to assess critically their environment, political and otherwise. So at the end of the course that I teach, I go through um, a, a book which I found really helpful uh, called Calling Bullshit by Bergstrom mm-hmm. and West. And mm-hmm. the book has nothing to do with conspiracy theories, but it kind of goes through just like reasoning flaws that we, we have as, as people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I just go through them as a way to point out, you know, because that's how that's how people get into conspiracy theory. It's not that conspiracy theories have some unique thing that makes them believable. They're just entertaining and they exploit the psychological flaws that we all have when we're trying to reason about things in the real world, data or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to give them those tools, but contextualize it in the case of conspiracy theories using some examples um, because mm-hmm. I think the only thing that I can really do in good faith is say, you know, be a critical thinker and think for yourself. Because I don't want to tell them, you know, go vote Democrat. <laughs> don't you worry, though, about the like, you know, uh, being a critical thinker, think for yourself is like a key message of conspiracy theory land at this point that like all of the heterodox yeah. stuff is like, you know, do your own research and don't trust any experts and stuff like that. It, it absolutely is. And I point this out to them and I okay, tell them, great. I tell them how this is actually <laughs> a bad faith message oftentimes. So the, uh-huh. you know, be, 
Think sure. for yourself, be a critical thinker, question everything is a bad faith argument oftentimes. Mm. And mm-hmm. being a critical thinker is not about taking every piece of information that you get and doing your own research. It's about mm-hmm. kind of common sense tools that you can use because, and then if you're interested or if you're not sure, investigate further. Do you talk about like relying on experts and like assessing expertise at all? I do. So we do, uh, I think one class last fall, I think we did Mm -hmm. one class, maybe two on, I I went through like some studies, just well-known studies, what Mm -hmm. studies that were known to be, you know, good and studies that were known to be flawed and talked about, here's how you assess evidence. I kind Mm -hmm. of, um, like nutrition studies are a good example of bad studies. Sure. And I kind of told them like, here's, here's how you (laughs) spot problems. Uh, But he, look, we can see the same, the same, not mistakes, but the same uh, flaws in these Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories. They're using the same ambiguity about terms or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, but if we took y'all's study, I know it's, you know, sort of narrow results, but like imagining that like, it's indicative of something and maybe we would see more results that would confirm it in broader cases. Right. Does it sort of lean us towards or indicate that like education is not the solution to conspiracy theories that like training individuals in critical thinking is like a downstream solution to an upstream problem. And that like the Marxists are just right that what we need to do is just lift up everybody economically. And that like giving people basic economic stability is the best way to make them resistant to conspiracy theories. So do you want the optimistic answer or the pessimistic answer? (laughs) This is embrace the void. You can, you can go as pessimistic as you want. (laughs) I think the pessimist, I mean, uh, the optimistic answer is yes raise people up by okay. their bootstraps, make them better off. And they don't care about conspiracy theories, right? Like conspiratorial, like getting involved in those things and wanting to act on them is really something that you, you, you don't do if you're kind of living your best life. So I guess I, we should also mention though, I feel like there's another, you know, all of this post-truth stuff, I feel like there's so many contradicting signals because there's also, you know, like if you look at the people involved in the January 6th riot, right, it's not a majority sort of lower income individuals in a lot of ways. It's a lot of fairly wealthy individuals, a lot of free time on their hands. And I do think there is something to be said that like, it may be the case that conspiracy theories are most effective against people in like a middle class setting, right? You're not worried and not, you know, you're not so worried about basic necessities that you have the kind of time to screw around with these entertaining conspiracies. Obviously the stuff about um, people in prison also being susceptible. There are lots of different ways, lots of different vectors of susceptibility. Um, But I sort of worry that like, when we when we make changes, we are just pushing people from one kind of susceptibility to another kind, essentially. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good point. Uh, so one thing I would say, I've seen these uh, seen these articles about you know the mm-hmm. kind of modal January sixth participant was actually pretty well off economically, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm skeptical about whether we conclude whether we can conclude things generally about who gets radicalized. That's fair. Totally fair. Just because those were the ones that could afford to go to DC. Absolutely right? true. 100% is a selection bias problem. I, I 100% agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, susceptibility to radicalization, uh, this is purely speculative. I have no data on this or anything, but my guess is that it's actually not that closely related to income at all. We're all, like I said before, we're all mm-hmm. a little susceptible and I don't think income is anything that's going to make us more or less susceptible to, to, to mm. being radicalized. Um, I, th- and I think of, you know, and in the, in the study that, that, that I wrote, mm-hmm. it's more of, you know, this, this economic effect is not at the individual level. It's at the aggregate level. It's just mm-hmm. changing the marginal person. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like, if you want to, so, and that's actually true of the susceptibility to radicalization part as well in that paper. Mm-hmm. So that, that study is really focused on kind of large scale policy and how it would affect like what, what should the public policy perspective be if 
the goal is to have fewer radicalized people or actually what this, the study is doing is um, lowered anti-government activity, which could come mm -hmm. from radicalized and part, partly come from unradicalized people. So is the idea that you're sort of effectively like pricing conspiracy theorist entrepreneurs out of the marketplace? It's very similar. Yes. The mechanism is very uh -huh. similar to that. It's I'm making it more costly for them to radicalize a small, you know, like kind of an infinitesimally mm -hmm. small group of people more mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. they don't want to do it as much because it's costly for them to do that. Interesting. So like, what about the psychological side, which I, you know, you said you got more mixed results on that. So like techniques like trying to discredit conspiracy leaders, do you think there's any value in trying to like expose conspiracy theater the leaders as frauds? Or do you think that mostly just risks a uh, blowback effect? And like, if that's not the option, like what is, what is the sort of model? Do you trying to reach individuals uh, or, or like, yeah, I'm curious what your how, how, where where our target sort of audience is for deconversion at this point. Um, I think I think deconversion is much closer to how we get people out of cults than mm -hmm. anything else. And the idea of you know, which are more public policy oriented ideas, to you know, should we target the leaders and try to discredit the leaders? I think one thing Trump taught us is you can't discredit. The, the conspiracy mm -hmm. entrepreneur. It, it, it's either people don't believe you're discrediting, right? Mm -hmm. Or they don't care. I don't, I don't actually mm -hmm. know which one is more important, but it's, you know, those two seem to be active among people. I think the right way to, the right way to approach it is like person by person. Um, the way people get mm -hmm. programmed from cults is their families, you know, get them out and they, spend a lot of time with them and right it's it's a long process and in some ways they have to be ready for it before before any of those interventions can work so mm -hmm. i don't know how to get people ready but mm -hmm. it seems like the way to get them ready is very like one-on-one -on -one interactions with family friends things like that it's funny you mentioned the don't don't believe and don't care thing. I w was just experiencing this on Twitter as well, where it's like this reoccurring theme of like, you'll claim that a person has made some horrible claim or conspiracy theory or something like that, right? And the their defenders will say, oh, they never said that. And you'll cite them, you know, chapter and verse. And there's an immediate flip to like, oh, well, they said it, but it's, that's fine. Like, it's okay or something. Right. So there really, there is that kind of constantly... Uh, moving target kind of concern there. Or, or they'll have um, the like, false I, flag logic again, right? They'll have mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. oh, they only had to do that to appease whatever, whatever, whatever. Right, absolutely. Um, but I also worry, like, the, you know, the deprogramming cult thing is, like, difficult in the best of times. And if you have, like, a classic brick-and-mortar cult where you can physically remove them from it, then, like, maybe you have more of a chance of breaking that hold. What I worry about is reading article after article about, like, grandparents lost to Fox News and stuff. And it's just, like, if your conspiracy is... 30 million people strong and you can talk to those people on the internet you know all day long every day if you want to how do you like how do family members compete against that like how do you pull someone out of that kind of um you know where they can just create the new family right they can just create an alternative family for themselves essentially that's a great question i don't really you know, I don't have a good answer yeah. to that one. I think, no, one I know. I, think, I, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing I've noticed, and I, I haven't thought that much about it, so take all this with a grain of salt, is mm -hmm. a lot of conspiracies, QAnon is included in this, they, they have to offer something in the future. And mm -hmm. when those things don't come to fruition, they lose people every time. Mm -hmm. So turn. January 6th, the, the fact that, you know, Joe Biden was still inaugurated on the what 21st or whatever it was QAnon lost a bunch of people that they counted as you know followers in that time mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. unfortunately i forget i can't remember the article exactly but i guess a lot of those people then got poached by more extreme groups yes that's a concern right and, and but i think that's that's kind of the moment to say okay look these white supremacist groups are going to try to poach the QAnoners 
right? Mm-hmm. After what? What is August? Is that there's some date in August that they're they're thinking? Oh, that, that Trump's going to be reassigned? Yes. Yes, um, August, I think that I think, comes from. Sure. I think that comes from QAnon. I don't know for sure. I think that comes from QAnon. Probably, but okay. it sounds like a QAnon thing. Yeah. So uh, that date in August comes and goes, and there's going to be a period where, you know, the white supremacist groups know they'll do what they did in January and try to poach people, but we don't mm-hmm. have a group on the other side that mm-hmm. t- makes similar efforts to poach people. Those are the people to poach. They're the least extreme. Yeah. And I guess that's hard, especially because I don't feel like there's much in the way of a community on the right that is providing like a viable alternative right now. So it's not like right. there's a chance of them getting poached by moderate conservatism or something. Right. right? So like your hope is them getting poached by outgroup members and like, in a choice, you know, in a choice between radicalizing further into your in-group versus like listening to an out-group member who's telling you that like so much of this was probably not true, that's that's a very hard right. psychological lift. It seems like. Yeah, the only analogy that I think makes me somewhat optimistic comes mm-hmm. from uh, comes from Iraq in hmm. in two thousand seven when the surge got underway, right? The, mm-hmm. There's some debate, and I, I'm not going to say anything about it because I'm not an expert on this, but there's some debate on whether it was the surge or the Anbar Awakening. And the mm-hmm. Anbar Awakening was, I think, the kind of thing of, you know, some religious leaders had, had started to, some religious leaders started to peel off people that were, were not, let's say, not radicalized, but were sympathetic mm-hmm. to Al-Qaeda. They were on the fringe of that that group. And Al-Qaeda used conspiracy theories to recruit people early on. And so these people believed those things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this was a way, it was like the off-ramp from, from that view. And I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of what we see on the right today in the most mm-hmm. extreme places, it looks a whole lot like Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. I think on Twitter it was y'all Qaeda because people had the same photos. Right. Well, yeah, the militia movement, you know, yeah. since the nineties has been a hotbed, right? You have Oklahoma city and all these things that are driven by conspiracy theories. And I think that's um, absolutely uh, a substantial concern. Um, you know, I'm curious, we're getting a little close to the end here. Uh, that's something I always like to ask uh, conspiracy uh, dabblers, right? People who spend a lot of time in this space. Have you ever been tempted by any conspiracy theory? Has there ever been one that you feel like pulls you in a little bit? Not that I can recall. I mean, maybe when I was younger, from watching the X-Files mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that just means I'm... I'm uh, too cynical <laughs> <laughs> too cynical or not cynical I, I can never tell if it's like too cynical or not cynical enough half the time i think i think it's uh both cases either you're not cynical enough to believe these uh-huh. things or you're too cynical that you're like ah, it's all bullshit <laughs> right i spent too many times in managerial meetings to know this is not possible right <laughs> What do you think? I'm curious. There's another one that's come up recently on my Twitter feed a bunch. Do you feel like there is a lot of conspiracy theorizing going on around the lab leak hypothesis with regard to COVID? Uh, Or do you feel like there has been a sort of misattribution of conspiracy, conspiracism um, towards people who, you know, were claiming it? I don't know if you're familiar at all with like the folks who've been talking on those issues. I've seen it. I don't know a lot about it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can see that going both ways. I, I remember in the, you know, a year ago, I thought, I thought, nah, this is all conspiracies. And now it's coming up again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Is it, is it just a rehashing of, of these old conspiracies mm-hmm. or are, are scientists kind of revisiting that hypothesis and, and. Uh-huh. For me, it's, I guess, an example where we. I think it's important for us to remember that 
we shouldn't be using the term conspiracy theory a lot of the time because I think it puts too much emphasis on the content, right? right. Similar right. to your sort of view, right? Where it's like, it's not the hypothesis about the lab leak that is the conspiratorial conspiracism part, right? It's the behavior around pushing that idea and claiming that people are suppressing that idea right. and they're doing it for evil motives and then tying that to like alternative treatments and met, you know vaccines and creating this giant web of like, people are preventing the truth about COVID getting out that I think is the real conspiratorial part. Right. I think the idea that it, that it was a lab leak itself is not a conspiracy. It's too, mm -hmm. it's too, um, right. It could, mm -hmm. it could be true. I have no idea, but right. the, the conspiratorial bent, which is, which is kind of a characteristic of conspiracy theories. It's not that there's a thing we don't, we didn't think it was true, but now maybe we're, you know, that's not a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. A conspiracy is they always knew it was true and they've hid it from mm -hmm. us, right? Every conspiracy, right. every conspiracy always has this background. Some group of people are so smart and so uh, purposive that they know everything and they're able to mm -hmm. do all sorts of things without ever making a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite kind of conspiracy or conspiracy theories or something? We, you know, we talked a lot about how they how, how entertaining they are. are. Is there like a branch of them that you find the most entertaining? Um, it's not a particular branch. I think the one I I was most interested in, or the one I found the most entertaining was that Finland isn't real. <laughs> I've heard that for Australia, but I haven't heard it for Finland. Finland's like a higher bet because it's like that's right in the middle of everything, right? Yeah, I. It was like some conspiracy that it's actually this landmass in Sweden that no one goes to, and it's and where Finland is on a map is all water, and the Russians want us to believe. <laughs> and somebody was telling me this, and I I said, but I know Finn, I know Finnish people. <laughs> <laughs> do you they're, they're like they're swedes i was like oh okay okay <laughs> i mean to be fair as an american you wouldn't be able to tell the difference so it's true you know it could <laughs> could go either way that's pretty funny but uh, i guess yeah, the conspiracy I always like... is they don't even know they're not finnish i think that's oh, if i remember right it's like they they think they're finnish people too mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is kind of like i think that's why i found it so entertaining it's like a conspiracy that no one knows it's mm -hmm. Even the people who should be in on it don't even know. Yeah. I like those because whenever it's like a, you know, like flat earthers or land masses missing or something like that, you immediately get to get into the questions of like, how are the air, you know, how's air travel working in right. this situation? And you get these really funny stories about like weird circuitous routes to hide the fact that like there's a giant wall of ice around the planet or something like that. <laughs> Um, okay, so one last question, and I'll get you to the enlightening round. Are there any like folks who you personally really find valuable and would recommend for for further reading or analysis on the epistemic crisis conspiracy theory world? Um, yeah, I I'll give you I'll give you two books that have been really important for my understanding. So the first is really mm -hmm. uh, conspiracies aside. The first is just about the media environment and its hoax by Brian Stelter basically about Fox mm. News. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like that book really, at least for me, helped me understand, you know, how, how is there this media company that is able, that, that has been co-opted and, and, and spreads propaganda. And in part of that is a lot of conspiratorial narratives. Mm -hmm. And the other, which is probably the most important is, um, there's two more. Uh, one is Merchants of Doubt which is about mm -hmm. how basically how do you construct a system of doubt to, to create the kind of um, assertion pushing uh, mm -hmm. like, how do you institutionalize that? And it, I've got that examples, one on my audible wish list right now. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It, it's basically yeah. around the tobacco industry that like mm -hmm. that, that was the first industry that started doing that. And the last, which is, um, I think the best is Republic of Lies by Anna Merlin. And it's yep, just about conspiratorial <laughs> thinking in, in the U.S. That's a fantastic mm -hmm. book. I, I actually have, mm -hmm. um, that I base the first half of my conspiracy course on that book and the students love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's, definitely. She's also a good follow on Twitter. For sure. Uh, great. So, okay, that's this has been a lot of fun. And unfortunately, now I have to torture you. 
So this, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Now, I actually, part of me was like, I should do a conspiracy theorist lightning round and like ask you which conspiracy theories are real or not real. Obviously, it wouldn't be be all not real, but at least it'd be funny. But no, all right, I'm going to put you through the proper. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. All right. You can't hedge. You can't define what you mean. Just real or not real. All right. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so let's check first of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real or not real? Real. Colors? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Okay, free will? Real. Selves, like persons? Not real. Okay. Genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Real-ish. <laughs> That's not an answer. <laughs> then not real. <laughs> okay, not real it is. Morality? Not real. Rights? Not real. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Not real. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Not real. Beauty? Not real. Love? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Real. All right, you survived. Very cool, calm, and collected for your uh, lightning round there. It was How do you feel? very hard for me not to qualify terms. Uh-huh. Okay, very, very you hard. were resisting very well. I, I, I'm impressed by your self-control there. And I feel so. like for most things, I was somewhere in between. Uh-huh. And so I kind of, you know, 40, 40% is not real. 40% real is not real. <laughs> All right, that's good math. I think that's some <laughs> solid um, ontology you have there. Uh, explains why it's a fairly sparse ontology. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, so, Scott, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Uh, you mean like on like Twitter and yeah, you know, Twitter and things like that. Oh, sure. Uh, on Twitter I am, let me just double check, make sure (laughs) at Scott A. Tyson. Okay, great. And they can, my website and everything is there. Yeah, great. And they can find your, your study if they're curious and all that. So, uh, thanks very much. This has been a lot of fun and and good luck. A lot of fun. I had a great time. Good luck helping your students marginally, maybe around the edges, avoid conspiracy theories. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, CampQuest.org, 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 Dude, and Fix the Vote. And thanks, as always, to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Little Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all for making this all possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, right here, right now, you are the void and the void is you.